you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Like any metropolis, London, of course, has its fair share of crime. There's few crimes I find more atmospheric than Victorian-era ones. There's just something about the newspapers of the era, from the violent and the sensationalistic depictions and the illustrated police news, to the many columns of illustrationless print of the times, which matter-of-factly throws the grim happenings into sharp relief. In the latter years of the Victorian era, a storied series of unsolved events took place on the eastern fringes of London. This is episode 40, The Westham Disappearances. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Westholm, in southwestern Essex, was not yet part of the London metropolitan area in the early 1880s. The administrative border of the city at the time was defined as the River Lee. Westholm was one of the was one of the fastest growing municipal areas in all of England, however, having only 6,000 residents upon it, Victoria's ascension to the throne, and nearly 200,000 by 1886. In fact. The London Times on November 1, 1886 called it London Outside the Borders. Its meteoric growth was due to the restrictions on certain industries placed by the Metropolitan Management Act of 1854, and the necessity for most canneries, for instance, to operate outside the bounds of the city itself. In addition to rampant cholera and other diseases due to the presence of the River Lee marshland, the streets were only dimly lit if at all. But as students of human history, wherever they may be from, know all too well, rapid growth often comes hand in hand with a sizable criminal element, as people from all corners flood into the area, both to live and to construct the living spaces needed by others. And in this, Westholm, apparently, was no different. Mary Seward was 14 years old and lived at 98 West Road, her father was described as a sober, industrious working man, and her mother was an invalid. At about 6 o'clock on the evening of April 13th, Mary's older sister, living at 50 West Road, couldn't find her four-year-old son. Mary and a few other neighborhood children went out to look for the boy, who later returned to the house in the company of the other children. 
but Mary herself did not return. Her relatives mounted a search for her, believing her to be kidnapped. She always seemed happy, had a good relationship with her parents, and was doing well in school, so the possibility that she may have run away seemed unlikely. A description of Mary Seward was given in the Essex County Standard on May 28th. The girl was described as looking rather younger than 14. Her hair is dark and hung around her face in natural curls. Her eyes bright, rather full, and dark brown. Face rather thin and complexion pale. On the right cheek, she has a slight scar of a circular shape, caused in infancy by a cut from a lamp glass. She was dressed in black Persian cord princess robe, trimmed with military braid, and had on a black cord apron, a small pink and white wool shawl, black straw hat trimmed with black silk velvet, and button boots. The same article also says that another girl, 15 years old, disappeared from nearby, and that there was an increasing feeling that some organized sis- an increasing feeling that some organized system of foul play was going on in the neighborhood. I'm not certain what girl was referred to. I could find no other references to this event. But as to the second assertion, that in part is bolstered by some statements made in the London press in Reynolds's newspaper for June 5, 1881, for example, in which is stated, Many very respectable persons have further given information of their children having been not only accosted, by, but run after by a man in the week before Easter. Mrs. Hughes, residing near to, to the roundabouts, states that on the Monday evening before Easter, two days before Seward disappeared, she sent her little girl on an errand rather late, and that she came in ra- terribly agitated and frightened, saying that a man had run out after her from some empty unfinished buildings, and that he crossed the road and tried to lay hold of her. Other similar cases are also reported. Also, along the same lines, the father states that he has received information from a woman who positively alleges that she knows a man by sight who has, on various occasions, visited the place for the express purpose of procuring young girls to go abroad. She further, he says, adds that he is assisted by a woman, and always seems to have plenty of money, and that he will pay a good price for assistance or further girls, and that he prefers obtaining girls from 12 to 15 years of age. She describes the man as being well-dressed, but having common, coarse features and an appearance like a foreign gypsy. She is certain he was in the neighborhood the week before Easter. In one of the last sightings of Mary Seward, a strange man had hold of her hand, at least so said one of the other children out searching for the lost boy that day. On June 24th, the Nottinghamshire Guardian reported that it was believed for a short time that Mary Seward was in one of the nearby Italian neighborhoods. This information was received after the printing of some missing posters about the girl. On Thursday, the parents of Seward received communications from some persons residing near the Italian colonies of Saffron Hill and Air Hill that a young girl with a scar on her right cheek and in every way answering the descriptions of the bill has been seen down one of the courts in one of those Italian slums and that she was in the custody of a woman who was evidently keeping a strong control over her, probably till the time she could be got away. The story continues, It was midnight when the father came up, and at this time the English portion of the population had been doing their best 
to keep a watch on, upon the various outlets round the district, and thus prevent an escape. It was rumored that the girl had been already removed from the house, but another or two were pointed out in which it was thought that she was probably concealed. In some of the cellars underneath the ground were quite young girls with babes, and the squalor and wretchedness were dreadfully apparent. Another house kept by a Neapolitan, we got permission to enter, as the keeper admitted that he had one young English girl there. The father proceeded to this room, and the policeman knocking at the door, the Italian inside asked, Who's there? On being asked to open the door, he dressed and did so, a beautiful-looking English girl, about 15 or 16 years of age, being in the room. She was so much like the photograph that the father at first almost thought she was his child. The so-called white slave trade, the purchasing or kidnapping of young girls with an aim to sell them into prostitution, was at that time rampant in London, and as was made obvious by the case of a girl named Louisa Hennessy just the year before, were sometimes imported to the continent, Belgium in Louisa's case. Accusations that the vanished girls of Westham had been sent to Belgium periodically surfaced in the press. Often, these girls were procured under the pretense of enlisting them as, de as a domestic servant or otherwise getting them employment. When I was researching this episode, there was a story sort of connected with this uh, trade of a girl named Eliza Armstrong. And I was going to mention that in this episode, actually. And, well, there's enough to the story that I'm probably going to break it off into its own episode. I'm not sure if that's going to be the next episode I do or not. I mean, I might because thematically it kind of follows on this one, but I don't know. As W.T. Stead wrote in his expose of the white slave trade, the maiden tribute of the modern Babylon, appearing in the Pall Mall Gazette, in July 1885, there are decoy girls in every great thoroughfare, agents of the procurus in almost every railway station. Children as they go to and from day school and Sunday school are noted by the keen eye of the professional decoy, waited for and watched until the time has come for running them down. Most respectable little girls of the middle class are sometimes accosted when looking into shop windows by pleasant-spoken, well-dressed ladies who offer to buy anything they take a fancy to in order to win their confidence and get them away. Despite the efforts of Mary Seward's schoolmaster, Ken Scott, the case soon passed from people's minds, and with nothing new to report and no trace of the girl, it vanished from the newspapers in June of 1881. The case was revived, however, early the next year, when another girl went missing. This time it was a 13-year-old named Eliza Carter. Though she lived in nearby Church Street, at the time of her disappearance, she was staying with a sister at 70 West Road, only a dozen or so houses north of Mary Seward's house. At about 10.30 in the morning on January 28th, Eliza left her sister's house with the intention of returning to her parents' home at 39 Church Street, only a few blocks away. She carried a load of laundry with her that she was going to deliver to a washerwoman that she would pass on the way. Sergeant Sewell of K Division was assigned the case, and he quickly ascertained that though the girl had dropped off the laundry at the washer's house, she had never made it to her parents. She was last seen by a school friend named Harold, walking along on Portway, around 5 o'clock. She had asked Harold, who was often referred to as being a girl in some sources, 
a boy and others, to accompany her to her home as she was afraid of encountering some man. Her whereabouts from the time she left the laundry until then are unclear, but it is implied she was in the company of a man she was wary of. At any rate, Harold accompanied Eliza almost to her home, then left. On the way to the house, they passed a man who said, Hello, Eliza. How is your mother? And then continued on. It's implied this man was the creepy individual Eliza was avoiding, but I'm not sure whether it is. This man, however, is described in the Daily News account of February 3rd. The only description Sergeant Sewell has of the man is that he was dressed in dark clothes and had on a high hat. In the course of his investigation, however, he has got a description of a man who was seen in company with another girl in Weston Park on the Saturday previous, whom he kept there from 2 o'clock until 6 o'clock. The man asked the girl on that occasion to go with him and stop all night, but she happened to live close by and ran away home. Eliza herself is also described. Complexion very fair, hair brown, eyes blue, wore small gold earrings with drops, dress speckled, large black buttons, navy blue dress, white straw hat trimmed slate collar satin, blue stockings and high lace boots. On January 29th, the day after Eliza went missing, a boy walking through Weston Park found her speckled dress lying on the ground, with the buttons cut off. It appeared as if it had been tossed over the border fence. It was soon determined that the dress could not have ended up there until several hours after she disappeared, however, as a football match had been played the day before at the spot where it was found, and that, and that had not wrapped up until late in the evening. There were rumors she had been seen being led along Stratford High Street in the direction of London City proper. Several individuals donated funds to a reward offered for discovery of the girl, among them Canon Scott, who had contributed to the reward fund in the case of Mary Seward. Eliza Carter was also a student of his. In 1884, the Hampshire Telegraph reprinted a letter from Major P.F. Robertson, a soldier in the Gordon Highlanders, who later served in the Boer War. On Sunday, the 29th of January, 1882, between 4 and 5 in the afternoon, a little girl, exactly corresponding in age, appearance, and every detail with a description given of Eliza Carter, was hurriedly dragged past me at the recreation grounds, Portsmouth, by a short, thick-set, repulsive-looking woman, aged about 45 years, height about 5 feet 2 or 3 inches, rather shabbily dressed, and broad across the shoulders. From the rapid strides taken, and other reasons, I believe that this person may have been a man of dwarfish stature in disguise. The little girl was in a hysterical state, and evidently in great harm and distress, so much so that I wished to stop the woman and inquire the cause. But having only just landed with my regiment, and being in uniform, and with a gentleman who strongly dissuaded me from interfering in the matter, I, to my lasting regret, refrained from doing so. But like Mary Seward's, the, descript the disappearance of Eliza Carter soon went cold, and for the most part left the newspapers in April of that year. These two are the only canonical Weston disappearances. The various books mentioning the occurrences, which have appeared in the years since, have added a number of other names to the list of victims, most of which had actually been resolved in one way or another. 
But before going through these non-canonical disappearances, I should address a matter which has arisen concerning Eliza Carter. There's a misconception that Eliza Carter reappeared shortly after her apparent abduction, and then later disappeared a second time. In some accounts, stating that she was forbidden from going home by what she called fairies. This is patently untrue. Many sources claim that the story originated in Carol G. Silver's Strange and Secret Peoples, but I don't think that it did. I recall reading that anecdote about the case in a book of articles reprinted from the British periodical The Unexplained, which was published from 1980 to 1983. In any case, it's likely one of those things that ar probably arises from a misinterpretation of the news accounts. Possibly the serviceman's letter about seeing Eliza after her disappearance, or of her being afraid to go home. The non-canonical disappearances, then, are as follows. On February 22, 1882, 20-year-old Florence Maud Wenden of 91 Gurney Road in Stratford went missing. She was last seen walking along Temple Mills Road in the direction of the Hackney Marshes. Her body, however, was later found in the Thames off Wapping, in apparent suicide. A young man named Charles Wagner of 104 Victoria Dock Road in Canningtown disappeared in April 1882, having been sent to the bank to deposit 150 pounds belonging to his father, a butcher. In what was called the Ramsgate Tragedy, Wagner was later found dead off East Cliff in Ramsgate, Kent, and another butcher named James Waters, an employee of the father, was found guilty. On May 8, 1882, 15-year-old Elizabeth Williams of 19 Royal Terrace in Westham disappeared. No resolution to this case is mentioned. On July 5, 1882, it was reported that Florence Elizabeth Douse of, of 7 Leobon Street in Westham, only a few blocks from West Street, had gone missing. It was soon determined that the father had beaten the girl for lying, and she had threatened to run away. Her case vanishes from the newspapers after this, but one would assume she was just a runaway. A 16-year-old servant girl named Hannah Evans, employed at 125 Kings Road in Upton Park, was sent out on an errand on the evening of November 27, 1882, and was never seen again. Her case, too, is dropped by the newspapers after the initial report. Florence Black, 14, and her 11-year-old stepbrother, John Seaborn, were both reported missing on August 1, 1884. They lived at 5 St. John's Road in Westham, and were last seen in the early afternoon. Both were later found at an aunt's house in Lee. On February 28, 1882, the Belfast Morning News reported on an arrest that had been made in Westham. It was usually assumed that there was a connection to the Seward and Carter disappearances, though none is immediately obvious. The police at Westham, Essex, yesterday afternoon, apprehended a man and a woman at Stratford on a charge of enticing children away. The man's name is Warren, chemist and druggist, trading at Victoria Dock Road. On Saturday, he went in a cab with a woman to Great Eastern Road, Stratford, and then got out, leaving the woman in the cab and walked toward Mar Maryland Point School. He was observed by a gentleman named Harris, a contractor, trying to take a little girl away. 
whereupon the gentleman interfered. Eventually, both the man and the woman were arrested. In January 1883, there was another development, in which a box containing the emaciated and mummified body of a child was found at the offices of Carter, Patterson & Company, a carrier service whose main offices were on Goswell Road in Clerkenwell. The body was thought to be that of a girl 13 or 14 years old. At first it was thought to be that of Mary Seward or Eliza Carter, but it was soon determined that it was neither of those. A woman named Mrs. Farrell, who lived in Salisbury Square, felt that the body may have been that of a servant girl of hers, Clara Sutton. By some coincidence, about a year before, Clara had been employed on an estate near Westham and was actually acquainted with Mary Seward, whose, di whose disappearance she followed with interest. There were a few other stories of the girl's possible identity, most of which placed her from somewhere in, in the vicinity of Westham. But still, no identification was ever provided for the body in the box, which came to be known as the Goswell Road Mystery. The finale of the events in Westholm, however, came on the evening of January 31, 1890. On that evening, 15-year-old Amelia Jeffs, also known as Millie, was sent out by her mother, Mary Ann, to buy some fish from a shop near the Westholm Church. Millie lived at 38 West Road, across the street and slightly south from the home of Eliza Carter's sister. A girl named Elizabeth Harmer saw her at the corner of West Road and Portway. She was seen a moment later by a schoolboy, Alfred Gardner, just around the corner, walking past a line of houses between West Road and Caster Park Road, known as Stanley Terrace, but she never returned home that evening. When Amelia did not return, her father went to the fish shop to check on her. Here, he was told that she hadn't been there. After this, he immediately reported the disappearance to the police, and then spent the rest of the evening in fruitless wanderings between police stations and workhouses in the hope of finding some news of the little one. On February 14th, an examination of the homes then under construction in the portway opposite Weston Park a block west of the homes where Amelia was last seen, was undertaken. The doors to some of these were open, and some were shut. Samuel Roberts, the watchman at the houses, and father of Joseph Roberts, who built them, was able to let Constable Cross and Detective Sergeant Forth of K Division into most of the closed houses, but said he was missing the key for number 126. The policemen managed to gain access through an open window in the rear of the house. They found nothing on the ground floor, but on examination of the rest of the house, found a closet standing open in an attic room. On the floor in the open closet lay the body of Amelia Jeffs, strangled and apparently raped. Footprints in the dust nearby were found to be Amelia's. It seemed that she was standing normally, dispelling any notion that she may have been drugged and brought into the house. The London Evening Standard on February 15th reported, On examination, it was found that some of the wooden railings in the fence at the end of the garden had been broken away, whilst admittance had been facilitated by the absence of a fastening on the window of the room on the ground floor. This would at once enable a person to enter the house and open the door. Evidence is not wanting to bear out the idea that the murder is the work of someone who has carefully selected the spot for carrying out his design. 
This was also confirmed by the Royal Cornwall Gazette, which stated, An entrance to the rear of the house would not, at all, would not be at all difficult. And if proof were needed of this, it is supplied by the fact that yesterday, some lads were discovered by the police in the very house where the body was found, and they had access to all the rooms but two. During the inquest, it was suggested by Joseph Roberts, the builder of the Portway houses, that Amelia had been held somewhere else in the days following her apparent abduction, as his son, James, was in the habit of going into the Portway houses. He said he was in number 126 on February 13th, the day before Amelia's body was discovered, and he said that there was nothing in, nothing in the closet at that time. The coroner, however, felt that the girl's death had come on around January 31st. The girl was buried on February 19th, her funeral entirely paid for by some anonymous person. Enough funds were raised for a large memorial at the East London Cemetery. The memorial to Amelia Jeffs, however, is no longer there. The inquest was resumed several days later, with the first testimony coming from the mother. She was asked if Amelia was acquainted with anyone associated with the Portway houses. Suspicion was already falling on the Roberts clan. She said that Amelia had often told her of someone called Old Daddy Watchman, which was a nickname given to Samuel Roberts by several of the children in the neighborhood. It was also soon determined that in November of 1889, there had been a theft of some lead piping from the Portway houses, and the police had been called. Inspector Harvey, who was dispatched, testified that he had entered number 126 at this time. Joseph Roberts maintained that the keys were missing, and the inspector must be wrong. However, inspection of Harvey's notes revealed that he was correct. The keys for number 126 had been present at that time. It was also noted that as Amelia's boots were not muddy, she had not entered the house from the yard, from which, as has been said, entry could be easily gained. This implied that someone else was in the house and let her in through the front door. With this, though, the inquest was wrapped up, and though the Roberts family was clearly suspected of having some connection with her death, no further charges were pursued against them. After all, essentially, what could any of them actually be charged with? There was an unusual postscript to the murder of Amelia Jeffs that came a few months later, in May. Work at 126 Portway was completed, and the house was leased to two families, those of a Mr. Bitten and a Mr. Hewitt. At about 1 or 2 in the morning on May 23rd, as reported in the Illustrated Police News for May 24th, a noise was heard near the attic window by Mrs. Hewitt, who awoke her husband. Simultaneously, Mr. Bitten was aroused by his wife and heard a crash. The noise, Mr. Bitten states, emanated from the attic window. But when a search was made, no one was to be seen. But it was evident that someone had been walking about, and furthermore, the attic window had been forced open. Mrs. Hewitt declares that she heard footsteps on the stairs, but nothing within the house had been disturbed, and this fact, coupled with other circumstances, drew forth the conclusion that some motive other than robbery actuated the nocturnal visit. Disturbed by this occurrence, something similar having happened a few days before, the men told a friend, a Mr. McGill. The three men re-examined the attic. McGill noticed 
a small trapdoor in the ceiling, leading to a tiny crawlspace that was ajar. This led to a small room under the rafters in which the house's cistern was kept. Several bricks had been removed from a wall separating number 126 from the neighboring house, number 125. In this crevice was found a piece of cardboard, which proved to be attached to the missing keys for, for number 126. Joseph Roberts said he thought a painter named Warren may have left the keys there. Warren claimed that he had done so weeks previous when he and some other workers were repairing the cistern. However, he could not describe the keys when asked to, and in any event, the key to the front door was still missing. One of the keys, though, did open the door to the small attic where Amelia Jeff's body was found. The police had had to break it down when they were searching the house. Interestingly, the Illustrated Police News account quoted above mentions that Joseph Roberts still resides a few doors off from 126 Portway, and not at 7 Evesham Road. Samuel Roberts had testified during the inquest that he lived at this address with his son, so had he been lying, had Joseph moved to one of the completed houses, or had the Illustrated Police News simply been wrong. When Amelia Jeffs first disappeared, people were quick to connect to the disappearances of Mary Seward and Eliza Carter. As was said by the London Daily News on April 3, 1882, when it was reporting on the Eliza Carter disappearance, each of, the, each of these little girls was last seen in the same street, a circumstance which at first sight suggests that, supposing them to have been decoyed or cunningly entrapped, the tempter is someone living permanently on the spot. Also mentioned in the same article is the following, which takes on another implication in the light of the Jeff's murder. Speaking of Carter's route to Church Street, it was said, There were two ways of doing this. From one end of the street, along the road skirting Weston Park, or from the other end, across a piece of common surrounded by built and partly built houses. It was her custom to take the latter route. The common, here described, was directly behind 126 Portway. There were several other instances of child murder in the vicinity in the years after Amelia Jeffs was killed. The first may actually not have been a murder. Annie West of Walthamstow was found in December 1892 in a ditch. Press reports, however, seem to indicate only that she was frozen to death, with no mention of foul play. The second, in turn, was likely going to be a murder, but wasn't. 11-year-old Eliza Skinner, living at 5 Beaconsfield Road in Walthamstow, was accosted by a man who promised her a penny in exchange for leading him to the main road on July 1, 1893. When Eliza did not return after a while, her parents went searching for her. They soon learned a man answering the description provided by her brother was seen with a little girl walking through a field. They soon saw the man running away in the distance. Looking around, they found their daughter lying in a ditch, her feet tied up, and dirt and leaves shoved into her mouth. The little girl was all right, however. Five-year-old Mary Jane Voller of 77 Harpoor Road, Barking, went missing on December 31, 1898, and was found by her father lying in a ditch with scratches and cuts all around her neck and face. But most interesting, in light of the Jeffs case, is that of six-year-old Bertha Russ, 
who went missing on February 19, 1899. She had left St. Barnabas Church for her home at 29 Byron Road in Eastham. She was seen to have at some point turned around and come back to the church. While she stood at the gates, a young man was seen to have talked with her. He left, and Bertha stayed at the church for a bit, before running off after him. That was the last she was seen until March 5th, when she was found, suffocated, in a closet in an unfinished house in Lawrence Avenue. So who truly was the cause of the Westham disappearances? I'm certain that the same perpetrator was responsible for all three of the Westham cases, at any rate. Something certainly seems to have been going on in the area. There are too many instances recorded in the press of unnamed children being accosted by strangers, usually near Westham Park. Mary Seward was last seen at the park, Eliza Carter cutting through the common behind the row of houses being built on Portway, and Amelia Jeffs on Portway. All are in extremely close proximity to the homes being built by the Roberts family. I'm pretty sure that either Joseph or Samuel was responsible. It would be very interesting indeed to find out who the builders of the house under construction in which the body of Bertha Russ was found nine years later was. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so, until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.